The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer. First John 1 John 1.9 teaches us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever we sin, we are out of fellowship. We are no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. And so it is necessary for us to admit or acknowledge our sins in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father, and instantly we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. Having recovered the filling of the Holy Spirit, we then can continue to walk by means of the Spirit, and that is called abiding in Christ. It is the ongoing fellowship of the believer, and it is only in that state of fellowship, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, that we can truly learn and assimilate the Word of God, understand it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it is only in that status of abiding in Christ that we can advance and mature in our spiritual life. So that, for that reason, we always make it a point, or I always make it a point, to begin class uh, with silent prayer. Now, that's also to teach you, sometimes, every now and then somebody says, that seems mechanical. If you do it mechanically, it will seem mechanical. But it is not mechanical. Everything that you are learning, every skill that you ever learned in life, was done by the numbers mechanically before you learned how to do it well. Uh, that goes for driving, from driving a car to ballet dancing to executing a good block in football or, or uh, shooting a three-point, a shot from out in the three-point zone in basketball. It takes time to learn how to do these things. So one of my uh, jobs as a pastor is to teach you basic mechanics of the spiritual life, but a mechanic is not necessarily done mechanically. Having said that, let's begin in a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can meet today, this Resurrection Sunday, because of Jesus' victory over death. We have a Savior who not only died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, but who had victory over death when he rose from the grave 
that Sunday morning. Father, we thank you for our salvation, that it is based on grace and not works, that it is based on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross and not who we are or what we have done. Father, we also pray for our nation at this time as we continue in this war against terrorism, that you would continue to guide and direct our leaders. And as it expands and takes on new dimensions in terms of all of the violence and warfare that is going on in Israel, we pray that you would give our national leaders wisdom, that um, Bible doctrine that is being taught and has been taught to some of our national leaders would would have an impact on their foreign policy because Israel must be preserved as a nation and they must operate on the basis of your word and not get involved in, in uh, playing the part of anti-Semitism that the Arabs have mastered so well. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and, uh, and apply them in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we are going to begin a study in this section of how the integrity of God impacts the integrity of believers. How the integrity of God impacts the integrity of believers. Now, last time we began our study of what is the major message of the Gospel of John in 1 John. This is covered from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28, down through chapter 4, 19. He has had an extended introduction. In this introduction, there was a prologue which introduced some basic concepts, important concepts, the idea of fellowship with God was introduced at that time. Then there was an introduction from um, 1, 5 down through uh, 2, uh, 11. And in that section, John emphasizes the importance of living in fellowship with God. And there we were reminded that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet believers do sin. There, Obviously, he mentioned some, some different positions there in 1 John 1, that some believers deny that they are sinners. Some believers uh, overlook the fact that they... Uh, that they have sinned and, and they deceive themselves. Uh, others want to just justify that, that um, because God has forgiven us, therefore we don't need to uh, confess sin at all, that, that if we, doesn't matter what we do, we still have fellowship with him. And these were the ideas that were being promoted by the false teachers that John is uh, warning this congregation about. He introduces the concepts of love and reminds his readers of the new commandment that Jesus Christ has given them in First uh, John 2, 4 and following, that this new commandment is related to the believer loving one another. And the third section of the introduction where he expresses the purpose of this epistle in verses 12 down through 27 of chapter 2, the purpose is to encourage a believer to advance through the various stages of spiritual growth to maturity because maturity is where real spiritual impact takes place. The goal is not just to be saved and be a baby in diapers, but to grow and advance to maturity in the Word of God. So we come to this section now, in chapter 2, verse 28. We read the overriding, uh, <clears throat> overriding command or theme of the message, and that is that the believer should reach spiritual maturity where he manifests personal love toward God and personal love toward all mankind 
occupation with Christ, and then he can become be bold and confident at the judgment seat of Christ. He expresses it this way in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. This is the mandate to abide in Christ. We don't grow by bouncing in and out of fellowship. You don't grow by simply confessing your sins. That doesn't get you anywhere other than back to a position where you can grow. Confession of sin is recovery. It is not growth. There's a difference between recovery and growth. If you're driving from from uh, here to New York and you make a wrong turn, turning around and getting back on I-95 doesn't get you to New York. It is driving down and staying on I-95 that gets you in New York. Is that, that, I think that's pretty clear. See, most Christians are so busy turning off of 95 and turning back on to 95, thinking that somehow all that activity back and forth is growth. It doesn't get you any closer if you just stay around uh, uh, New Haven and go up and down 91, back and forth from 95. So that, is that clear? You know, it's funny how some Christians think that if they just go on and off, in and out, in and out of the bottom circle or, or right circle as we now have it in our illustration, that somehow that, uh, that, that's growth. Activity is not necessarily growth. Involve, staying in fellowship, learning the word and applying it is growth. And that's John's message, that we are to abide in him. That is, a, uh, that is to be a continuous habit pattern in the life of the believer as indicated by the present active imperative form of the verb. Little children abide in him with a result or a purpose clause. There's a purpose to this. So that when he appears, that is, as we saw last time, his appearance at the rapture, when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds to take the church home to be with him, that we know that the next stage in, in our life is going to be an evaluation, an evaluation at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And at that point, we are going to uh, discover how much time we spent in fellowship. Because the time spent in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, is the time during which the fruit of the Spirit is developed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, against which there is no law. That is growth. And for that spiritual growth, we will receive rewards. If there is no growth, there will be no rewards and there will be loss. There will be loss of reward, loss of position, loss of status in the kingdom. We won't lose salvation, but we will lose those blessings, those privileges that God is going to give to the successful believer who advances to spiritual maturity. And as we studied last time in Revelation chapter 20, where we read once again one of those uh, long lists of sins, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, um, thievery, murder, all of these various sins, that if that is the dominant lifestyle of the believer, then his part, it says in Revelation 20, verse 6 and 7, that his part will be in the lake of fire. Now, the way, re, way most people read that is part is role, but that is not what the original Greek means, as we saw last time. Part is the Greek word meros, and that means Inheritance. It was a technical word used in the legal literature of the first century to indicate a, the, that portion of an inheritance statement in the will, the share of the inheritance, the, uh, uh, the portion that was to go to the heir. 
And so what the, the way that should be translated is that their their share, their inheritance will be in the lake of fire. It goes in, down, it gets flushed down the cosmic commode and burns up in the lake of fire for all eternity. And that is why there will be shame at his coming. There will be many believers who are absolute failures in the Christian life because they never learned to make doctrine the highest priority in their life. To them, getting to Bible class was something they did because it was it was relatively important to them, but it wasn't a high priority. So they showed up when they could. They showed up on Sunday morning or they showed up on Wednesday night, and, and uh, their attendance was somewhat sporadic. And as long as things were going well in their life, well, they might, they may or may not show up at Bible class. But when things got tough, well, that's when, that's when they got consistent. But as soon as things smoothed out, they quit. It's also amazing, I see this in the life of people, is that, for a while, they're in class all the time. Everything seems to be going fairly well. And then they go through some sort of change in life. Sometimes it's at high school graduation when you leave home and you go to college. Other times it's when you get a job, you come out of college, and you get offered a job on the other side of the country, and now you're on your own for the first time. For other people, it's when they get married. Uh, and all of a sudden now they have an additional responsibility, and maybe they, they married someone who's not very positive to the word. And that's a real test. Or maybe they married somebody who's not a believer. And I don't know what's worse, being married to an unbeliever or being married to a believer that is negative. You know, sometimes people say, well, at least they married a believer. Well, I don't know. You know, the believer is going to be under divine discipline, and you're going to get disciplined by association. So what do you want to be married to, an unbeliever or a believer that's getting disciplined, and you're going to be go through suffering by association? I don't know that's your decision. Some people just don't seem to make it an issue. It's amazing. By the time they they, they start dating, and uh, they, they by the time they get around to talking about spiritual things, they've already decided whether or not they're in love. Now we just want to make sure this guy's not an unbeliever. This gal's not an unbeliever. It's like a second thought. Oops, let's just uh, you know find the magic bullet here, make sure they're saved, and then it's okay. And uh, it's not okay. You, you want to make sure you, if you get married, you're marrying somebody who's a believer and that they are as positive as you are. I've known too many people who have married somebody who wasn't positive, and the next thing you knew, they were never at Bible class. Or they married an unbeliever, and the next thing you knew, they were having all kinds of problems in their life and marriage because there were many dimensions of their life that they just couldn't uh, uh, share with an unbelieving spouse, and now they are loaded with self-induced misery. Of course, the only way to recovery is First John 1, 9, to get back in fellowship and then to spend maximum amount of time in doctrine because what got them in that problem in the first place was doctrine wasn't a priority. They weren't there day in and day out. They weren't letting their mind be saturated by the Word of God. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to guarantee a life of mediocrity and misery, then you just uh, go through life as if doctrine is somehow secondary. Uh, people who are going to go somewhere in the spiritual life are people who are consistent in Bible class. They're there in our context. They're here first hour, second hour, Wednesday night. They listen to tapes to fill in the gaps during the week. Uh, some of you have commented that, uh, and I've heard tapers comment on this, that they usually listen to tapes uh, two or three times before they get it all. I, I design it that way. 
I want everybody to have more than enough. I want to provide a banquet feast at every class so that there is more spiritual sustenance than you can possibly handle in one class. And that is to create a realization. One purpose is to create a realization that you need to eat a whole lot more than you're eating. You know, if somebody comes in and walks in here, I want one of the first responses in their mind to be, I never knew the Bible. There was so much to learn about the Bible. I'm abysmally ignorant. I better be here every time the doors are open. I think that's a good response for people to have. Uh, the response of the failure believer is, oh, that's too tough. He uses words I don't understand. I'm going to go someplace where it's a lot easier and uh, I can just uh, sit and sing a lot of songs and go home feeling good. That's the person who's going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. So in 1 John 2.28, John gives us a little pep talk. He tells us why it's important to see what's going to happen or to follow the instructions in the next three chapters. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming, that is, at the rapture. And then he begins in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, this is going to introduce a key word, and that is righteousness. This is going to be developed consistently throughout the next uh, uh, ten verses, down through uh, chapter 3, verse 10. We have the importance of righteousness contrasted with continuous sin. For example, look at verse 6. I want, I, want, I want to look at the big picture here. We're going to take time to go back, and we're going to hit all the details going through here. But I want you just to look at these things, and, 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 and if, you're, if your Bible's open, you can circle some of these key words. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. Now, you ought to be thinking immediately, well, we just heard a command to abide in him. Now, we know that when he says no one who abides in him sins, he always he said back in one eight, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So he's not saying Christians don't sin. But if you're in fellowship, you're not sinning. When you sin, you're going to be out of fellowship. So verse 6 is going to tie this back to the main commandment here, which is to abide in him. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. See, that, that's going to pack a punch because what John is saying there is that if you continue with a lifestyle of carnality, then obviously you haven't come to a point where you really know God. See, that comes through doctrinal orientation and grace orientation. It's getting up into spiritual adolescence. And then in verse 7 he says, Little children, let no one deceive you, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, that may seem confusing. There are a lot of passages in, the, in, in John that are tough. But what John is saying is that, look, if you're a believer, you need to grow up and act like your father. I mean, that's the bottom line of the message. And some of you are parents. Um, I want, I'm going to say, use an illustration that, that I think I might have heard once or twice, and I'm sure some of you have used this. You've seen your child disobey you or do something that embarrasses you or something that angers you, and you look at them and you say, no child of mine ever does that. See, they did it, didn't they? 
Well, when you say no child of mine ever does that, you're saying, you're saying that because of who you are and your relationship to the family, this is something that should never characterize you. And that's what God is saying. That's what the Apostle John is communicating to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 John, is that there are certain things that should never characterize the life of a mature believer, an advancing believer who is a child of God because of his position in Christ, because of his position in the royal family. These things should not be uh, part of your life. So it, it is a strong warning, and it is a hard thing for many people to deal with. That's why there's a lot of rationalization and justification that goes on in a lot of commentaries on First John to try to avoid the implications of what John is saying. That's on the good side. On the other side, you always have the extremists who try to say that, well, this means that if you're a real Christian, there's some sins you won't commit. If you're a real Christian, you won't do this. That's not what John's saying either. He's saying that, that positionally, because of all you have, because of who you are as a child of God, there are certain things that, that uh, should not be part of your life anymore. There is something that is different, and that comes as a result of growth. So after we look at verse 7, where we learn that as a child of God, we are to practice righteousness. This is not imputed righteousness. This has to do with application. See, this is another problem in a lot of doctrinal churches. People somehow never get quite to the point of application. I've seen this. Uh, I've heard it said by people in doctrinal churches. I probably, when I was young and dumb, was guilty of saying it. And that is, well, it really doesn't matter. I'll just confess it and uh, deal with it later. And that's just a rationalization and justification. That's not a that's not a biblical concept at all because John says that we are to practice righteousness. Now that's not self righteousness. That is not arrogance. That is not uh, a number of things that people want to pack into that. That is not legalism because we will have to so we have to address what, what John means by righteousness as we go goes through this. And then he says in verse 9, he contrasts this. He says, no one who is born of God practices sin. So verse 9 says, no one who is born of God practices sin. And verse 29 says, the one who is born of God practices righteousness. Now that seems to be, a, be a, some hard statements for a lot of folks. So we're going to have some fun things to study in these first ten verses. But the theme here is that the believer who is abiding in Christ develops Applied righteousness. That is the theme of these uh, verses from 2.29 down through uh, 3.10, that development of, of applied righteousness in the life of the believer. So we begin in verse 29 with an, a, 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 an abrupt beginning. We've just read the command to abide in him, and then all of a sudden in verse 29 we jump into a, a change in topic. It's, if you know that he is righteous, well, where in the world did righteousness come from? There, that's not mentioned in the previous previous verse. There's just a an abrupt shift into a new topic in the study of Greek and language. As I said earlier, vocabulary is of the essence. And one thing you'll learn here, if you learn nothing else, and that is new words. Ascenditon. Not a word that you were taught when you were studying literature in the eighth grade or in your junior year in high school. Ascenditon has to do with an abrupt shift in topic. It's a stylistic device that a 
writer uses in order to bring emphasis to his subject. There's an abrupt shift. He doesn't use any sort of uh, normal uh, transitional device. He doesn't use a therefore, a wherefore. He doesn't say but, and, or and if. He doesn't use any of the normal devices that a, uh, a writer might use to uh, gradually change from one subject to the next. He just jumps. He just shifts. And that grabs our attention that this is something important. There's a change of subject, and we need to pay attention to it. He just starts in, if you know. Now, one thing that we have learned, and you should learn, is basic Bible study 101, is that whenever you see an if in the Scriptures, you ought to ask yourself, wonder what kind of conditional clause this is in the Greek. Because in English, we only have one way to express a condition. And a condition is a, the kind of statement that says if. You know, if it rains this afternoon, it's going to be messy at the Easter egg hunt. Those of you who are going after the pagan Easter eggs, I'm just pulling your leg. Nothing wrong with going out and hunting Easter eggs and having a good time. Just don't call this day Easter. Call it Resurrection Day. Easter, as I said in the first hour, for those of you who weren't here, Easter comes from, etymologically derives from the Babylonian fertility goddess Ishtar. And uh, she was symbolized by eggs and rabbits. So you wonder what the connection is. You always wondered what rabbits and bunnies had to do with, uh, with Jesus rising from the grave. So that's because the uh, old Catholic or the Roman Catholic Church and the infinite wisdom of uh, synthesis and assimilation with pagan religions adopted all sorts of holidays and practices that had nothing to do with Christianity just so it wouldn't run afoul of local customs. So that's where the concept of Ishtar or Easter came from. So anyhow, if we say if it rains this afternoon... Uh, it'll be a messy day, messy time of the Easter egg. Well, we don't know whether it will or not. It's cloudy out there. It rained a little this morning, and there's a 50-50 chance this afternoon and a 100% chance tonight. So we don't know. That's what the Greeks call a third-class condition. It's, it's what we think of normally in terms of a true condition. Uh, we might say another comment like, um, like if the uh, President of the United States is a believer and understands the word, then we'll continue to support Israel. Now, that's not the same kind of condition. Now, some people who are ignorant of the president's spiritual status may think that's a third-class condition. If he's a believer, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. If he understands doctrine, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But he does. He is a believer, and he does understand doctrine, and the United States should go on supporting Israel. Uh, that's what the Greeks called a first-class condition. If, and we're going to assume that the first part of that statement is true. See, in any conditional sentence, you have two clauses. You have the first clause which says, if, and you state the condition. Then you have a second clause, and whether you actually say the word then or not is irrelevant. It's implied. If something, then it will be, if it rains this afternoon, it'll be a messy day. Then something. The first part is called the protasis. Remember, P-R-O means first, so that's what comes before, protasis. And the second clause is called the apodosis. Now, you have four conditions in Greek. In the first class condition, you assume that the protasis is true. If, and we're assuming it's true. 
That doesn't mean it's true. You use this in a debate. If, um, for example, you might say if, uh, if socialism were true, see, we're not saying it is true, we're just going to assume it's true, then it's going to benefit all of our culture. We're going to assume it's true, even though we know it's not true. So um, that would be a first-class condition, as a debater would use it, just assuming it's true, even though it's not true. But it's usually, you have to judge the context, it's whether it's a simple assumption or whether it's a statement of fact. Second-class condition states the opposite. It's the assumption of untruth, if and it's not true. First-class condition was used by Satan when he tempted the Lord in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness, is if you are the Son of God. First-class condition, if and you are. Second-class condition, if and it's not true. Third-class condition is the true condition. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. And then a fourth-class condition, which is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, is if I wish it were true, but it's not. Now, here we have a third-class condition. Now, that ought to cause you to scratch your head a little bit when you look at this. A third-class condition presents the condition as uncertain of fulfillment, that it's uncertain if you know that he is righteous. Now, is John saying, if you know he's righteous, maybe you don't know it? He's just addressed them as as believers for two chapters, he's talked to the fa- talked to them as fathers, that is, they're mature believers there. He's talked to them as young men, that is, as, as adolescent believers. And he's talked to them as children, but he's talked to them as if they at least have basic doctrine under their belt. They've gone through the first semester where they've understood the essence box, the essence of God. Now, the essence of God was drilled into me. Uh, when I was a kid, and I don't think I could ever forget it, and I want to make sure none of you ever forget it. The essence of God, first of all, God is sovereign. That means he is the ruler of the universe. We touched on this this morning in Acts chapter 17, that because God is the creator of all things, he's the creator of heaven and earth, the universe, and all that is in them, he has a right to rule it the way he sees fit. He is the king of the universe. He is the ruler of all things. It's his plan, not our plan. God is sovereign. Secondly, he is perfect righteousness. We use a plus here to indicate absolute perfection. He is plus R. He is absolute perfection. There is no sin in God. John states it this way. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is absolute righteousness. Third, we say that God is justice. So we put a J in there for justice that God is absolute just in the way he deals with all of his creatures. He is the supreme judge of the universe. Fourth, he is he is love. He is the definition of love. You want to know what love is, you always start with God and how he treats his creatures. You don't start with man and how he feels about other people. And then last on this side, God is eternal life. He has no beginning and no ending. He is eternal being. He always is. That's not bad grammar. That's how it's stated. Then we have the three O's or the three Omni brothers as we teach the kids. First of all, God is omnipotent. That means that God is all-powerful. Secondly, he is omnipresent. 
That means that God is everywhere. He is present to every part of his creation equally at all times. He is not limited by space. He is omniscient. Third, omniscient. This refers to knowledge. Science is knowledge. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He knows all the actual and all the possible out to the, the out to infinity. He is immutable. I for immutable, meaning God never changes. The scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. There is no shifting shadow in him. And then he is uh, finally, truth, B for veracity. That means God is a voracious God. That is the adjective form of veracity. He is a voracious God. He is absolute truth. So these <clears throat> ten attributes represent the core attributes of God. We might use the analogy of colors. In colors, you have your prime colors. When you mix those colors together, you come up with the entire uh, spectrum of the rainbow. Well, we take apart these basic attributes of God for academic purposes, but in reality, they are all blended together into the person of God, so that God is not sovereignty apart from his omniscience. He is not love apart from his justice or righteousness. He is not uh, veracity apart from his sovereignty. Now, we may talk about different attributes for, for the purpose of understanding them and for academic uh, study, but in reality, they all exist together in one person. Now, in God in his absolute person, so we'll put down the word absolute, in God in his absolute person, these attributes are true for God in his existence in the Trinity. For example, love as a verb is what's called a, a transitive verb. That means it takes a direct object. That means it has to do, it has to love something. There has to be a something or a somebody there on the other side of love. You don't just say, I love. The, love automatically implies I love something. Now, for God to be love, there has to be an object for his love, and God has an eternal object for his love in the Trinity. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves God the Holy Spirit. So that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be eternally loved because each member of the Godhead, each person in the Godhead, is eternal and is perfect righteousness, so that God the Father has a perfect object in God the Son and an eternal object in God the Son, so that the Father can always and always loves the Son, the Son always loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always loves the Father. This establishes a principle that love is an eternal characteristic of God and eternally has its object in the Creator. Now, I want you to hang on to that thought because the Bible talks about many other characteristics of God that are different from his attributes. Attributes are primary. That means they are true for God in and of himself. But there are other characteristics of God. These are secondary characteristics. These are things like the, the, the Bible uses to describe God. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He is gracious. Now, whenever you talk about the grace of God or the mercy of God, you always have in view 
an undeserving object. An undeserving object. Now, in eternity past, there was no undeserving object except a creature perceived in the mind of God to exist sometime in the future. So grace cannot be part of the primary attributes of God because grace only functions in terms of a real or perceived undeserving object. In other words, it functions only when there is a creature in view, either in reality, in the present, or in the uh, in the future. Therefore, grace can't be an attribute. Grace is a characteristic, and it is the function of an attribute. It's the function of divine love. So that explains the difference between attributes and absolutes. And John had taught this to the congregation there when he was there. So he knew they they knew their basic doctrine. They knew the essence box. They understood the Trinity. And why then would he say, if you know, as and use a third-class condition? Why wouldn't he use a first-class condition and say, if you know and I know you know that God is righteous? See, those are the kinds of questions that you have to ask when you're studying the text and when you're getting into the details of the Scripture. A third-class condition presents the condition not only as uncertain of fulfillment, but also as a condition that's still likely. Uh, there are generally three nuances or shades of meaning to a third-class condition. First, a logical connection. Second, a merely hypothetical situation that probably will not be fulfilled. And third, a more probable future occurrence. See, the the third-class condition really is quite fluid and can take on different meanings. And it's this this final one that is his use here, a more probable occurrence. He he, if you know, and he knows that most of them do know, but he is he is drawing their attention to the fact that not all believe that God is righteous. You see, what's the problem in in this church? And that's these false teachers, the false teachers who are coming in and teaching that Jesus Christ really didn't die physically on the cross. He just appeared to, and that was called docetism, and we studied that. They are teaching that it doesn't matter whether you're in fellowship or out of fellowship. As long as you're a believer, it's okay, and you're going to automatically be walking in the light because you are a, a believer. And we are reminded that back in John First John 1 John 1.5, John made the clear statement that God was light, and in him there was no darkness at all. And these false teachers were saying that, that the nature of God was such that it contained both light and darkness. So walking in darkness really wasn't a problem for the believer. In other words, walking in sin, having a life manifesting unrighteousness, really wasn't a problem for the believer, and the presence of sin was not an important issue. In other words, they were rationalizing and justifying sin, and they were using grace as a license for sin. Now, I've heard that before, that when you teach 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you, forgive us our sins, that that's a license to sin. Well, well people may take it that way. See, if you're, if you're really teaching grace, if you're really teaching the grace of God, then somebody's going to take advantage of it. If you're gracious to your children, they're going to take advantage of it. But eventually, as maturity sets in, you don't take advantage of grace. You realize that grace gives you opportunities. It's not a license to get away with something. 
And so it's important to deal with people in grace all the time to give them that opportunity to grow and mature. So God is dealing with us in grace, and that means that 1 John 1, 9 is an opportunity to recover, not a license to sin. Now, the reason John is using this this, uh, third-class condition here is to present the idea that that sort of like we could paraphrase it this way. If, in contrast to some others, you know that he is righteous, then you also know the following. Let me say that again. John would be saying that if, and sorry, in contrast to others, and we know there are others who don't believe that God is righteous. If, in contrast to others, you know that God is righteous, then you also know something else. In other words, he's using a typical Jewish technique of teaching, and that is moving from the known to the unknown. And the known principle is that God is righteous. And the new principle is that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, this is an interesting point that is often misunderstood, so I want to make three points of clarification just so you don't jump to the wrong application. First of all, this is righteousness as God is righteous. That means it's talking about absolute righteousness, which is related to both divine justice and divine love. It is not human morality. Now, that's something you need to remember. Righteousness is not human morality. This is not some sort of legalistic external standard. This is not don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. This is something that is that has to do with the basic integrity of God. Second point, the opposite of this statement is not true. If you make a statement, any statement, any affirmation, the opposite of that statement is not necessarily untrue. If you say such and such is true, then the opposite of that is not necessarily untrue. That, but that's, that's called a logical fallacy. And see, there are many people who will look at this and say, well, if everyone who practices righteousness is regenerated, truly born again, then everyone who practices unrighteousness is not born again. And you'll hear that from some people. Normally we call that the lordship gospel. That if you practice unrighteousness, you weren't really born again. John isn't saying that, and that is a false conclusion drawn from this. He is saying, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, you can't practice true divine righteousness unless you have first been truly regenerated. The unbeliever cannot, he may be moral, he may have a relative integrity, but he can't produce the kind of true integrity and righteousness that only the believer can produce. Because that comes only from somebody who has been uh, regenerate. That's what he is saying. He is not saying the opposite of this statement. So that's an, uh, a wrong conclusion. Now I want you to notice how John, and the third point, the third point of clarification here is that the concept of righteousness in John is related to understanding love. Now that's not a concept that you normally understand in American culture or in Western culture as a whole, or any other human viewpoint-based culture, that the concept of love is intimately related to righteousness. In other words, if there is no righteousness, there can be no love. I don't care what somebody is like. If there's not a level of integrity there, they can't love. 
because love is based on righteousness and integrity. I want you to look down at the chapter in verse 22. John says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Notice there are two commandments there that are listed. One, believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's what you do to gain eternal life. First, or John 3:18. He who has this, he who believes, he who has the Son has the life. Or he who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of God, and that's why people are condemned because they do not believe. This is His commandment first that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ, and second, love one another. Jesus added adds that second commandment. It's not added to salvation. It is the commandment for the believer. Given in John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So these are the two issues for the believer's life. Now, as we have seen in our study before, loving one another is not something you start doing the day after you're saved. You can't do it until you've developed some real Christian character. And that comes only by spending time walking by the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ, because it is the Holy Spirit who produces that. You don't sit up one day and Pack the Ten Commandments on the uh, on your refrigerator, and every morning get up and read them over and say, "Well, I'm going to stick with the Ten Commandments, and and therefore I'm going to be righteous today." Once again, that's a false human viewpoint, legalistic concept of righteousness. Scripture says we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's basic. Spiritual skills, growing in grace, growing in knowledge. And after we do that, then we can begin to understand what love is because you can't know what it means to love God or what God's love for you means until you've spent some time really understanding what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. If you're not taking, haven't taken the time to study through the issues of the atonement, the plan of salvation, all the dimensions of God's gift of eternal life, then you don't really know. You can begin to understand God's love and salvation, but you're just scratching the surface. There are dimensions to God's love that you don't, you can't even imagine when you're a born, a brand new, uh, born again believer. It takes time in the Word and you have to grow and mature. So loving one another is tantamount to reaching spiritual, uh, maturity or at least the adult spiritual life. Verse 24, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So this tells us, once again, what abiding in him is. It's not believing in the name of his son. See, some people want to make abiding equal believing, and this makes it clear that it's something separate, that abiding in him is related to keeping his commandments, uh, starting with believing and adding into it that advance to this uh uh, spiritual adulthood, and loving one another. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So abiding in him produces righteousness. Righteousness is related to loving one another, keeping his commandments. So when we get back to verse 29, we're going to see this connection between righteousness and love. And notice, just skip ahead for the, for the moment to 
verse 1 of chapter 3. It's unfortunate that you have a chapter break there in your Bible because uh, there was no chapter break or verse division in the original. John wrote like this. He said, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See what a magnificent love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. That's how it's written. No break in between. He moves directly from talking about practicing righteousness to the love the Father has for us. So here we see this connection between righteousness and love. But before we get any further, we need to stop a minute and review the doctrine of the righteousness of God. First of all, we have looked at his essence already, and we have seen that it is this second element in the essence box. He is sovereign, he is righteous, he is just, he is love, he is eternal life, he's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, immutable, and veracity. Second point under the doctrine of righteousness of God, righteous means that God is the absolute standard. The concept of righteousness refers to the standard of God's character. Righteousness is the absolute standard of God's character. Point number three. The Greek word for righteousness is dikaios. It's also the same word for justice. The Greek word dikaios can mean righteous or just, either one. Same thing's true in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is tzaddik. Looks like this. And it can mean either righteousness or just. That's the word group. Now, why is it that you have in these two languages a single word that does double duty. And the reason is is that that single word looks at this concept that we'll call the righteous the integrity of God, looks at this concept of integrity from two aspects. One aspect has to do with the standard, the absolutes by which things are evaluated. And the second is the application of that standard. So righteousness has to do with the absolute perfection of God. That is the standard of his character. Justice is the application of that standard to his creation. So we have two two English words, righteousness and justice, but they both reflect a single word in Greek and a single word in Hebrew because they relate to different aspects of that word. Fourth point, the perfect righteousness of God is affirmed in numerous places in the Scriptures. For example, in Psalm 11, verse 7, we read, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. God cannot love personally anything less than righteousness. Then we have two other fascinating verses that link several attributes together. This is where I want to, what I want to emphasize this morning. Psalm 100, or Psalm 89:14, we read, "Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee." It's linking four attributes: 
Righteousness and justice on the one hand, loving kindness, that is the application of, of love to his creatures, it's faithful, loyal love, it's the Hebrew word chesed, and truth, that is the expression of his character in terms of revelation, go before thee. And then in Psalm 101.1, the psalmist says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to thee, O Lord, I will sing praises. So here we have this relationship in both these verses of love or chesed to the justice, the tzaddik of God. So the perfect righteousness of God, point four, the perfect righteousness of God is affirmed in numerous places in Scripture. And then point five, in these last two verses, Psalm 89.14 and Psalm 101.1, we see a connection drawn between divine love and justice and righteousness in the Scriptures. We see that same connection drawn between 1 John 2.29 and 1 John 3, verse 1. And yet modern man often objects to this connection between love, divine love, and divine righteousness. How often do we hear the objection, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? Well, maybe you haven't heard that one, but I'm sure you've heard the next one. How can a loving God call for the execution of criminals? So we just had that with this case down in in Texas, that was fun to be down there during the trial. And um, you have so many people who were just could not believe that a jury would would possibly consider execution. Well, they should have. It doesn't matter. A, nobody is born insane. You lose sanity as a result of the consequences of bad decisions. You make one bad decision after another, how you interact with, with reality, how you solve problems, how you face the difficulty in your life. You make one bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and ultimately that culminates in the fact that you commit a criminal act or a capital criminal act. Now, at the time, you might not have appreciated. I heard one defense attorney say that the way the statute ought to be written is not that you know the difference between or don't know the difference between right and wrong, but that it should be written they don't appreciate the difference between right and wrong. Typical defense attorney. See, anybody at any point in time can appreciate the difference between right and wrong. The point is not what your mental status is, but you wanted to do it and you did it. And therefore you are culpable for the consequences of what you want to do. And the scriptures make it clear that there are certain activities that are so heinous and so awful that God says that that person needs to be removed from the mass of humanity, and that's the penalty for their sin. See, God is more concerned about the rights of the victim than the rights of the criminal. And we've become, uh, we've reversed that because man is so good and we're so much smarter than God. But that's the second form of the objection. How can a loving God call for the execution of criminals? And third, how can a loving God allow suffering and evil to take place? They're all forms of the same basic question is that, that how does, can God really love us and, and have such harsh standards? And what modern man does is he looks at the character of God and he takes one attribute or another attribute, rips it out of the essence box, blows it up to way out of proportion, and then makes that the standard by which he judges all of the other attributes. We fail to understand that these attributes all work together in perfect harmony, and that's point number six. 
All the attributes of God work together in perfect harmony. And that is called integrity. That is called integrity. There is a unity and a wholeness in the character of God. And so the core of divine integrity includes three elements or attributes. We have the first two up here on the on the overhead. And the third is love. Related in the Psalms that I mentioned, Psalm that I mentioned, uh, as chesed, as loving kindness. God's righteousness, justice, and love work together in perfect harmony. They are never at odds with one another. What the righteousness of God demands, that's the standard. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. That's the application. And the love of God expresses this to mankind, undeserving mankind, through grace. So we see that the integrity of God is God's righteousness as the standard, His justice as the application, and His love as the, as, as the, um, faithful, loyal expression, and it is all manifested or expressed to the individual through grace. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies through the love of God, or motivated through the love of God, and expressed through grace. Love supplies the motivation for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Justice is the application. There has to be a judgment of sin because the standard of God's righteousness is violated at the cross. But what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies, and that was done at the cross. So in the divine essence, righteousness, justice, and love all work together in perfect harmony and are expressed to his creatures, his undeserving creatures, as grace. Point number seven. As God has integrity, so must his children. As God has integrity, so must his children. That is what God is producing in the character of the believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't do it ourselves. You don't drag yourself up by your bootstraps, tack the Ten Commandments on your refrigerator door and say, this is what I'm going to do. It is the byproduct of your walk by the Holy Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, taking in doctrine, learning it, learning to think in terms of doctrine and applying doctrine, then God the Holy Spirit produces the fruit. And part of that fruit is that a practical righteousness is developed in the life of the believer so that when he becomes mature, you look at that believer and you see an element of righteousness displayed in his life that is Real integrity, it is not just morality. It is not legalism, but it is real integrity. And uh, I have known a few believers in my life who have reached that stage where you look at their lives and you see a level of integrity that's beyond anything else you see anywhere else. And, that is, and, and one thing they all have in common is they made doctrine a priority in their life. So John says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness, and this is the uh, verb, uh, it's really a participle of poieo, which means to do, it means to work, it means to practice something. Who's someone who does something, he does righteousness. This isn't legalism, this is the outworking of spiritual growth. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And here we come to a very interesting phrase 
in the Greek. This last verb is the perfect passive indicative of ganao. Now, John does something here that is typical of his style of writing. First, he uses a present participle. And he uses a present participle of poieo. P-O-I-E-O. And then he follows that up with a perfect tense verb. Now, the perfect tense verb here is what's called an intensive perfect that emphasizes the results of an action completed in past time. A present participle, now participles take their time inference from the tense. So a present part, participle is, is um, cotemporaneous with a perfect tense. It happens at the same time. But what negates that principle is the fact that you have a definite article in front of the participle, and in John's writing, that makes that participle function as a noun. It's talking about a class of people, people who do righteousness. It functions as a noun. It doesn't have a verbal aspect. Remember a participle, for those of you who, I know most of you have forgotten any basic grammar, a participle is a verbal adjective. Sometimes it functions like a verb. Sometimes it functions like a noun or an adjective. Here it's functioning like a noun. It just means a class of people, those who practice righteousness. And they have been. Emphasis of action in the past. That means they were saved and regenerate at some point in the past. But at this present time, as a result of this past action, they are now practicing righteousness. It does not have the idea that they have to be born again before they are they are righteous. It's just saying that of this class of people, they have all previously been born again. You have the same construction. The reason I'm going down that rabbit trail, what appears to be a rabbit trail, is in 1 John 5, 1, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You have the same construction. Two or three times when I was in Houston this last time, I got hit with people saying that 1 John 5, 1 meant that you have to be uh, regenerate before you can believe. So they're basing that on the grammar. On all John is saying is that believers are people who have been born. Just as here he's saying those who, um, the, uh, believers are all people who at one time were born again. Just like it's saying here, those who practice righteousness are people who at one time were born again. You have to be born again in order to practice righteousness. And um, if you're a believer, then that means that at some point you were regenerate. That's what First John 5, 1 says. It doesn't, it's not making any statements about um, uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. You have to believe before you are regenerate, and that's demonstrated in a number of passages in uh, the Gospel of John, including John 20, 31, that it's by believing you might have life in his name. But... <clears throat> What we're going to see now is that the person who is truly regenerate can practice righteousness. It doesn't come instantly. It's not legalistic. It is not some external superficial code. It is the consequence of growth. It is a byproduct of walking by means of the Spirit. And as a result of that, there is a level of integrity that goes far beyond anything that we could produce on our own because it comes from that maturity that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. Next time we'll come back and see more about how this is related to the love of God and our adoption as children.
and to the royal family of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to study your word this morning. We pray that we might be challenged by the things that we've studied to realize that that understanding your word is not merely an academic exercise, but it is pushed in the direction of application. But that application comes under the filling of the Spirit by walking by means of the Spirit and abiding in Christ. As a result of that, righteousness or real integrity is produced in the life of the believer. This is not something that is simply superficial. But we must be reminded the doctrine must be the priority in our life because if we are not here studying your word, constantly letting our thinking be, be, be uh, overloaded or, or directed by your word, constantly being saturated by your word, that we will, we will not grow, we will not advance in our spiritual life. Father, we pray, too, for anyone who's here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would make that sure and certain right now. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of practicing righteousness. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of church attendance or church involvement. It is simply a matter of putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture says, and you will be saved. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.